0: Hello Rob.
1: Hey, what's up, Mike? How you doing,
0: brother? I'm good, brother. How you doing tonight?
1: Pretty good, man. How was your day?
0: Not too bad. Not too bad. Enjoying the nice weather we're having. It was really nice today. Yeah, yeah. How was the bar?
1: Oh, it wasn't bad. It was pretty decent today. You know, nothing too crazy. It's still getting used to the go to um the Gold Cup and um also that it's also it's only phase one that we just opened up. Hopefully everything's right, right. good. By next week, maybe we can get a phase two and maybe phase three, and hopefully open up back to normal.
0: Well, I hope by the time everybody hears this great show we got planned tonight, that everybody's back to normal and we're drinking.
1: <laughs> oh yeah, and I, I like, got, I was, I was like, I got all into these guys. It's a great history that they have. Um, so today it's our rock show seventy eight, and we're talking about a band called the Pretty Things.
0: Yeah, the Pretty Things. Um. I, I, it's funny, I, I always think of these, this band is kind of like the number one band that you never heard of.
1: But they were a strange, dude, they got like a little history with the Rolling Stones in the yeah. formation.
0: Yeah, I mean, they, they kind of morphed out of the Rolling Stones and uh, they, were, they were competition with the Rolling Stones. They were actually the kind of like nastier little brother of the Rolling Stones. Wow. You know, but uh, they had a 55 year career. Yeah, it's crazy. Uh, and, you know, uh, they had a lot of band members, a lot of people in and out of the band and a lot of great stories. And uh, unfortunately, uh, back uh, in May, we lost uh, the singer Phil May. OK, uh, he'd been the original singer for all those years and he passed away from complications. Uh, I think believe he had a hip replacement. Something happened after the replacement.
1: That's and, and, crazy. Dying for a hip replacement. Think yeah. about that shit.
0: Uh, he was 75 years old. I'm not sure of the details, but, you know, anytime you get surgery, something can happen, right? Yeah, anytime. You know. But, all right, so um, the pretty things. Now, th- like I said, they got their start kind of in the early Rolling Stones. Before they were called the Rolling Stones in 1962, uh, the band consisting of Mick Jagger, Keith Richards, and Dick Taylor on yeah. guitar, okay, Was a band called Little Boy Blue and the Blue Boys. Now I think they had like different drummers and stuff. They didn't have a steady drummer, but there was a guy named Brian Jones. But Mike,
1: was there a band, or were like a a, a, were they like a high school band,
0: or were they actually no? They were they were in um, art college, a place called Sidcup Art College.
1: Yeah, and and how many people came out of that? That's another thing that was like
0: holy shit. Yeah, yeah, a whole a whole R and B scene. Kind of came out of that college.
1: All right. So we're at Brian Jones. So who was this guy, Brian Jones?
0: Well, Brian Jones, you know, from the Rolling Stones. Yeah, of course. Okay. Now, he was trying to put a band together and he kind of almost took those guys away. Um, and and they, he was going to call them the Rolling Stones. But by Dick Taylor being in the band, it was too many guitar players because Jones played guitar, Keith played guitar. Okay, and Dick played guitar. So what he did was he he moved over to bass for a little while. Okay, but it only lasted about five months and it it, it didn't work. I think that, you know, he just wanted to leave the band and kind of do his own thing. So he was friends with another Sidcup Art College student named Phil May. And uh, Phil convinced Dick Taylor to start a new band. Now, in this band, Taylor would play guitar, May would sing. And play harmonica they had a guy named john stacks on bass and brian pendleton on rhythm guitar yeah. uh, they had originally a guy named pete kitley on drums but he would be quickly replaced by a guy named viv Broughton. now there was another sit cop uh Sid cup art college student named brian morrison and he became their manager and he would be with them through the entire 1960s uh morrison in fact would get them a recording contract very quickly with uh, Fontana Records in early 64. Now, you remember from some of the other British bands we've done, that Fontana name came up a lot, like the Trogs. Yeah. I I believe the Kinks as well. Uh, Hey, but that
1: same agency also uh, represented Pink Floyd, right? Uh,
0: Yeah, right. right. Well, Morrison Morrison, uh, was just starting out as a manager at that point, but he put together an agency... That eventually would uh would represent the early Pink Floyd, I believe. Which, yeah, so which did Barrett. Yeah.
1: So these guys are in good hand right now, starting their career, right?
0: Yeah, yeah. They they got signed pretty quickly. The uh, you know, playing R and B, like what the early Stones sounded like and stuff. They, they they were very similar to that. I think they were like, you know, uh, a little a little sloppier maybe, a little a little raunchier in the R and B that they okay. did. You know, but not, you know, I I always like when you listen to the pretty things and you listen to the early Rolling Stones. Maybe the only thing with the early Rolling Stones is they had some songs that, you know, were a little more pop than the, the, the pretty, pretty things ever were, you know. But they were very similar when they started. Now, this guy Viv um, Broughton, okay, uh, they would have another drum change and they would get another guy named Viv Prince. So I guess they like drummers named Viv. Yeah. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) But now you might wonder how they get their name. The band got their name from the old Willie Dixon song called Pretty Thing, an old song from 1955. Yeah. And that, you know, Dixon was a big influence on them. Uh, Bo Diddley was as well. And Jimmy Reed. And, you know, same influences the early Stones had, basically. But they kind of like filtered it out differently, a little bit differently. But now their first three singles went top 40 in the UK and this would be, you know, the height of their popularity. Okay. Right here in the beginning. Uh, there was a song called Rosalind that got to number 41. Yeah. Uh, a song called Don't bring me down. That got to number 10 and a song called, uh, honey. I need
1: that number, 13. number 13.
0: Right. Right. Now they were known for outrageous, outrageous shows. Okay. Uh, you know, uh, there'd be riots. Uh, People be rushing the stage. Phil May was a fantastic frontman. Uh, a lot of energy, jumping up and down. Um, the drummer, uh, Viv Prince, was also very crazy. He was known to leave the drum kit, run around a little bit. You know, and they and they were they were they were like known for outrageous behavior off stage as well. Like. Um, Uh, Phil May used to say he had the longest hair in the U.K., (laughs) which, you know, back in 62, 63 was a big thing, you know. Um, But they were very popular in the U.K., Australia, and New Zealand, Germany, and the Netherlands right off the bat. But they didn't have any popularity in the United States for their whole career. Uh, You know, I think it was a matter of timing. There was a lot of bad business decisions, and there was also... Uh, record label problems that that kind of like offset them being popular in the United States. One thing that they did early on is uh, in 65, they would decide to go to New Zealand and Australia um, because they were you know huge down there and they could have gone to the States at that time. But they chose to do this New Zealand tour. All right. And when they got there, there was so much outrage and media craziness that New Zealand actually, after them, stopped issuing visas to any bands playing music like them. Wow. So they never went... They went back there again. I'll get into it later. Many, 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 many years later. But no, you know, R&B British bands were going to be playing New Zealand after the Pretty Things, after what they did. They were just known for for craziness early on, you know?
1: And then at this point... Um they got another band replacement, right?
0: Yeah. Um by November of sixty-five, uh, there would be another another replacement. But let me get into something quick. Okay. They had an album with Fontana, just called The Pretty Things. Yeah, that their was like album. the first album, right? Right. It came out in March of Sixty Five. Um, it's interesting. Uh it was released in the United States, um, uh, but it was like a, it, it took a while to get released here, but it had a different lineup of songs. Okay. For instance, Rosalind was the big hit, but they didn't include it on the UK release. They only put it on the US release. Wow. And I guess because it was never released here as a single, so they could add it on. Okay. There were one or two other differences in the songs as well. So if you have the, the Fontana original release in America, it has Rosalind, but if you have the UK release, it doesn't. Is that something that happens once in a while? They just
1: change it, cause
0: yeah, yeah. Um, if you remember, Fontana did that also for the Trogs. Yeah, they did. Uh, They changed it. They actually changed the name of the title of the record in the United States. It was called Wild Thing because the hit was Wild Thing. And in 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 the in in the UK, I think it was just called the Trogs. Yeah, something like that. But. You mentioned the lineup change in November of 65 Viv Prince the drummer annoyed his bandmates one too many times and he would be replaced by Skip Allen who would be with them for a while. Um by early 66 the band made a short film called Pretty Things on Film. Have
1: you seen this? What was this about? Was it just like them playing live it's, or I, it was like i little... I've
0: seen it. I've seen it. It it's like a couple of things. It's like a lot of live little live footage. And then there's like some, I think, backstage stuff. But then there's also like an early type of promo video, okay, for the song "Can't Stand the Pain," which is one of my favorite songs. You know what?
1: That's like technically what's really the first ever music video in a way.
0: Well, I don't know if it was the first, but it was definitely, you know, uh, you know, it was something that was not done often. But it was definitely,
1: uh, they definitely shot it to make it like a music video. It was shot that yeah, we need to. Yeah. And
0: it was going to be shown in the movies. Yeah. Okay. At like, uh, you know, a short film uh, to show the fans. And it only got shown a couple of times. They lost money on it. it. You know, it ended up like the band had to like pay for the rest of the movie or something like that. They ran out of money. Um, they also released that year an EP called Raining in My Heart. Okay, uh, and that was an old Slim Harpo song. It was like a four-song EP that they released. And then December 65, they released uh, Get the Picture, okay? And uh, there's a song on there called You Don't Believe Me. And Get the Pictures, you know, their second LP. Um, There's a song called You Don't Believe Me. And Jimmy Page gets a writing credit on it. He was friends with them early on.
1: So these guys, man, they knew some guys. They knew Jimmy Page, they knew um, Keith Richard, they knew Mick Jagger, and now Jimmy Page. Yeah. Those those are some big names
0: you're getting in there. Yeah, yeah. And and Page was a big fan, and he'll he'll come into, into more importance later on. You'll see. Um, two singles that came out around this time. Um, you had Midnight to Six, Man, and Come See Me. Okay? And those were, you know, big... They didn't sell a lot, but they've become like classic Pretty Things songs. Now, by the end of 1966, the, the music scene was kind of falling into decline in the UK. The music was changing and the band started to flirt with soul music. Yeah. Uh, mid-year, they would cover a King's song called A House in the Country and they'd release it as a single. But also in December of 66... The somewhat soul song, Progress, was released as a single and featured the band with a brass section. So they were experimenting with some different sounds. Yeah, they had a lot. Of, um, they, these guys experiment a lot, man. Definitely, Rob, definitely. Um, and I think that's what makes them so interesting. Um, Pendleton, the rhythm guitar player, would leave in December of 66, and he'd be replaced for some live shows by Billy Harrison. Who was the guitarist for them. For them, yeah. Van Morrison, Morrison's band. Um, the bass player Stax would leave in January of 67, and they would get John Povey, the guitarist, and the bassist Wally Waller from the band Burn Elliott and the Fenmen. Okay, so they were considered the, the Fenmen, the, the backing band for, yeah. for Burn Elliott. Okay. Now in 67, they were contractually obligated with Fontana to put out one last album. And that would be called Emotions, another good album. Um, so, Mike, the they band, went
1: back to being like a five-piece band again then.
0: Yeah, yeah. At that point, they did. They spent a couple of months as a four-piece and then went back to a five-piece so they, what was,
1: What was the five band consist of? What was it?
0: At that point? Yeah. You got Waller on bass. Yeah. You got Povey on guitar. Okay. You got the drummer. Okay. And you got uh, the drummer, Skip Allen. And then you got Phil May and Dick Taylor on guitar.
1: Wow, that's a lot of guitars, still.
0: <laughs> well, you got two. You got two guitars, a bass, a drum, and a singer—five piece.
1: Yeah, that's that's a lot, man. When you think about it, you that's, know.
0: That's a that's a class, You know, that, that's a very workable lineup. The Stones did it their whole career. Yeah. You know, um, in '67, like I said, they would put out emotions, uh, but the band was kind of writing more pop-influenced songs that were kind of like. Ray Davies from the Kinks influenced. Okay. And uh, they were interested in that. And some of the songs would have like string arrangements on that album. And they brought in a guy named Reg Tisley. Uh, Fontana was kind of trying to lighten them up a little bit. And they weren't into it. They they were kind of going more in a psychedelic direction almost. They were interested in doing at that point. Yeah. Um, what would happen is kind of like... The live material started to not match what the what the uh, what the studio stuff sounded like. They were going in, di- in a different direction when they played live. but they brought in uh, Reg Tisley to do the arranged the string arrangements. They had a producer named Steve Rowland that Fontana brought in, and he would bring in more brass sections on some of their songs that he felt the songs needed to be filled out. Now, Waller and Povey, when they were in their prior band, the Fenmen, They were known to harmonize the two of them together, sometimes backing vocals. And they would bring that to the pretty things. Um, they had a song called Children and a song called Out in the Night, a song called Bright Lights, Big City, and a song called My Time, where you could hear them harmonizing quite a bit. They were like Beach Boys fans, so they like to do that
1: sometimes. (laughs) Let me ask a question. What can you tell me about um what is they, they refer to something what is a double A single?
0: Oh, okay. A double-A single is when, well, you know what a single yeah, is. Yeah, I know 45. what a single is. Okay. Now, there's always two sides, obviously, yeah. to it. So you have, normally it's an A-side and a B-side. Yeah. And the A-side is the one that you want to be the hit. Yeah. The, and you tell the radio stations, play that. The B-side was just what you stuck on the back. Sometimes it would be a song on the album sometimes it would be a song not on the album So it's
1: almost like a throwaway song it could be a hit or sometimes, not be a hit
0: Sometimes and there's cases uh there's cases it's happened many times where where there's been the B side actually becomes the hit Wow okay but you're asking me what a double A Yeah side what's is a now. double A a double A side is when you have two songs and you tell them, play either one. That's the double, you know, they get, whatever one becomes the hit. Okay. So, All right, so you're, you're hoping both of them do, but at least one.
1: Yeah, because I was, I was just reading that thing, and I saw that terminology because, um, like. You don't hear it much anymore yeah. because
0: it's for singles anymore.
1: Yeah, so it was like, it was talking about the good time and walking through my dreams. That was a double-A right, single, right. and I was like, what the hell is a double-A single? I got to ask Mike that. Mike would know.
0: Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it was something that was way more common in the '60s, maybe the '70s, but by you know, by the time the '80s came along, you didn't hear that much anymore, and then singles fell out of fashion. You know. Um, wow. Now, like I said, by April of '67, the the live shows were starting to be quite different from what you were hearing on the albums, and uh, they kind of ignored this album, "Emotions," altogether when they played it live. I think they just wanted to
1: get out of the deal and they just did an album to get out. Exactly,
0: exactly. They, I think they didn't put a lot into it. It's actually an interesting album. Um, they didn't play stuff off it until late in their career where they would pick a song or two uh, that they finally, like all agreed on, were good. They just, they felt it was a throwaway. But um, they did one time perform one, one time for the song Children, and that was on a French TV station. And it's a strange uh, clip. They have like a mime on stage. <laughs> okay? And they're singing this song. Mimes always freak me out, right? Aren't they weird? They're fucking weird. They're just weird. Yeah. They just, like, they're just weird. Yeah, yeah. Now, September of 67, they left Fontana altogether. And they would sign up with EMI Records, another big label. And by November, they would be ready to release a, a song called Defecting Grey. Now Defecting Gray was like their official first uh psychedelic song and they were basically telling their fans this is where we're going. Uh unfortunately it didn't sell. <laughs> yeah. But in early early 68 they came out with uh with a new single called Talking About the Good Times Walking Through My Dreams is the the single you mentioned. Yeah.
1: All
0: right. Now that the, when they started working on that single when they recorded it That would be the time when they would start working on the recording sessions for the album SF Sorrow.
1: So, Mike, I'm going to ask you the big controversy. Was this the real first rock opera album ever? Without a doubt. This is what before, who was saying, Tommy? Was Tommy the first one?
0: Well, you know, history likes to say that Tommy is the first rock opera because it came out in, like, May of 69, something like that. Yeah uh it's with no doubt a rock opera tommy, yeah. it's just it's just not the first one now the difference between tommy and sf sorrow and other rock operas uh and, and you know the who did two classic ones Quadrophenia and tommy is that uh in in, in tommy for instance you follow the story in the songs in other words they're put together in an order and you kind of like follow this story. Yeah, it's like following the main character or whatever. The the lyrics and everything and, you know, you follow it. The thing with SF Sorrow is the songs do tell a story, but they also had on the liner notes on the record, paragraphs kind of explaining what was going on. So you had this like extra little thing here to kind of help you through the story. And I, I mean... Uh, Pete Townsend has always been kind of, like, funny about this. Like, he'll say, oh, I didn't even know about that album. And then he'll say, no, no, Tommy's the first rock opera. Well, no. And I think he still says that to this day. You know, he just doesn't acknowledge it. But uh, And it's not important. But, but I think, to be honest with you, um, I'm going to say something here that might blow some minds. Not only do I think SF Sorrow is the first rock opera, it's actually better than wow okay and as a psychedelic album okay i think it's better than sergeant pepper wow okay all right i love this album and uh it's something that it took me a long time to get uh i listened to it a bunch of times over the years uh and it honestly it wasn't until maybe 10 years ago that i really got this album It's an album that, like, everybody should hear once, I think. Uh, There's just something very real about it, very, I don't know. It's just a of album. I thought it was a pretty good album.
1: I heard it for the first time while researching for the show, and I was like, whoa, man, this is pretty good. But I didn't realize it was a rock opera until you, you told me, you know? So I was like, wow, man.
0: Yeah, I mean, the idea, I mean, they never called it a rock opera. Okay, but you know Tommy was always promoted as yeah. a rock opera, so you know in that sense maybe that's what Pete Townsend saying is, "Oh, well, you know we called it a rock opera," but I think that that you know not only is it a concept album like Tommy is, it's it's just the first, it's the first one that I know of, you know, it came out six months earlier, so you got to give it to him, but it was based on. Uh, a short story that Phil May wrote, the singer. And uh, it's in, an, in, you know, I won't go into it too much, but, it, you know, it's about the story of a guy named Sebastian F. Sorrow, S.F. Sorrow. And it follows from his birth, through uh, love relationships he had, war, uh, particularly it's World War I, uh tragedy, crazy madness that he has, and finally, like, an old-age a uh, revelation that he has in the final song, and uh, it, it just tells this great story about this guy, and and it's all over the place. It's it's trippy, you know. You're probably supposed to do a hit, of, <laughs> and you definitely like got to do it. <laughs> you know. But which I've never done. But but I think that you know, just listening to it and getting into it, it's 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 an interesting album to get into if you like. I think pop. if
1: you take a nice mushroom um, hit, you'll be there.
0: <laughs> maybe maybe. Um, Now, the album would only be performed two times in the band's existence, all right, Uh, in 1968 and then on the 30th anniversary in 1998. Um, At the beginning of recording this album, though, Skip Allen, the drummer, would quit the band to marry his girlfriend. And they would get a new drummer named Twink. And he would join for this album. So he was the, the official drummer on this album. Um, In November of 68, the album would be released six months before Tommy. Got to add that in. Um, And it came out, the timing of it, you know, wasn't great because it came out at the same time as the Beatles' White Album and also the Kinks' Village Green Preservation. Yeah, it came out with a very, Yeah. I mean, think about what in that six-month period you had the Beatles, the Kinks, the Pretty Things, and the Who. Come out with classics. I don't think there's ever been a period in rock and roll where you had something like that. You know, think about that. Just in that yeah, that's a, they're all great but, albums.
1: You know, when you talk about it, yeah, I mean, shit! What you
0: know? Yeah, yeah, al- al- albums that stand the test of time. Now, SF Sorrow, <laughs> you know, it's something that took many, many years to be. Mike, let me answer the question. But I Let's say if
1: this album would have come out maybe like a year. I- after all these um, albums came out, you think it would have been a commercial uh, hit?
0: You know, uh, well, probably, probably Oh, you don't not. think so? Wow. All right. Pro- probably not. Um, they didn't, EMI didn't push them that much, okay? They didn't promote them enough. Now, they, uh, I'll explain here. They, they, they had budget problems mm-hmm. off the bat when they were making this album. And they ended up, when it when it came to the artwork, they had to design their own wow. fucking artwork. Their own album. Now, Phil May would make a... He could draw, so he would make like some artwork for the front cover. And then Dick Taylor had some photographs that he used for the back sleeve. But EMI didn't do anything to promote this album, and it took another six months for it to get released in America. And that was a problem. Um, Motown at the time, would pick up the album for the American release. Now they, you say, why Motown? Well, Motown had a subsidiary, a new label they were starting called Rare Earth. And Rare Earth was going to be their label to sign rock bands. And they were one of the first bands signed to that label. Um, There also was a band called Rare Earth. okay, An American band called Rare Earth that was on that label as well. Um, I don't know if you ever heard their version of the of the Temptation song, get ready. Go get
1: ready, cause here we are. Get ready. All right.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right, but it's like a rock and roll. No, nah, I never heard that. I
1: gotta look into that.
0: Check it out. Very, very. They were, they were a cool band. Um, but you know, six months later, they released it. But Tommy by the Who had just come out, and it was being promoted as a rock opera, and no, no, no one was interested with SF Sorrow at that point. You know, the who, the who kind of took all the air out of the room. Um, also, uh, one of the one of the more famous rock critics, uh, Lester Bangs, at the time in Rolling Stone, he called the album ultra pretentious. And that was like a kiss of death. Yeah, that's right like, there. fuck. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And I, I like Lester Bangs. I have a couple of books of his writings, his, his articles and stuff. And he was one of the best rock critics ever. But he did occasionally get shit wrong. And that was one so time. So, Mike, why do you think
1: this uh, band had
0: like early commercial
1: success and then it just went like they never got it again? Like, it was like, that's it.
0: You know, they got crazy twists and turns in the yeah. history. Uh, you know, the music changed. They kind of did their, I, I kind of think that they stuck to their guns and didn't care too much about what the music was like. At the time, you know, in other words, when R&B kind of changed from if you listen to like the early stones until that, you know, later period, middle period where they get Mick Taylor, the music is more blues, kind of like different. But that R&B early sound, uh, you know, the Bo Diddley sound and stuff like that. uh, That's what that's when they had their biggest hits. But then they just they went in a different direction. They did what they wanted. They didn't care about the music scene. But they they you know they had a lot of breaks. They you, you know there's some great things yeah, in their history. Yeah, that they definitely them. had a lot and, of.
1: They, like, they were like a cat with nine lives. This band.
0: Exactly, exactly. You couldn't kill them. You know. Um, now, in the wake of SF Sorrow bombing, pretty much uh, Dick Taylor quit the band in June of '69. And he would be replaced by uh guitarist, Victor unit. But in the summer of 69, uh, the band was kind of like on a hiatus. They weren't broken up, but they weren't doing anything. And they would, they had just gotten a new guitar player. And this is one of the things that, you know, uh, I'm saying is a strange twist of, of fate. They were approached by a French millionaire named Philip Barge, Okay. And Philip, wanted them the guy was filthy rich okay uh you, you, there's some f- sort of rumors that he was in the mafia or things like you know he had like drug connections because he, he died kind of like you know he got epstein or something. <laughs> <like> that, okay <laughs> okay many years later but he was a young guy and he was a big pretty things fan and he was loaded okay so he approached them and he said i want you guys to make an album just for me. Okay, and he'll he'll sing on it. He did the singing. Okay. And it would only be released a couple of copies to him and Wow. His friends. Yeah. Now, and he had the money to do it, okay? So the band was kind of like, you know, they, <laughs> they 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 were hurting for okay. money, okay? Yeah. And what they decided to do was was go to France. And record this album, and, and Phil May told the story many, many times what happened. They, they went into the recording studio, and this guy, DeBarge, was there. And he didn't know how to sing. He couldn't sing. But he wasn't that bad when you hear the final product. And what, what he did was, Phil, they wrote this album just for him. Okay? It doesn't really have a name. Uh, I, I've seen it. I've listened to a couple of tracks. What I've is it, Monsieur Rock?
1: <laughs> something like that.
0: It, well, Monsieur Monsieur Rock, I, uh, is that what it's called, Monsieur Le Rock? Something like that. It's it, that was. Uh, I'll get into okay. that in a second because uh, we got to talk. We got to talk about ugly. Yeah. <laughs> but 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 when they recorded this, what what Phil May did is he would sing it in the studio, and then this guy DeBarge, would have a a copy of what they of that particular song and the band doing it and he would stay home at night and learn learn it and kind of learn the way May sang and did it in the same style you know and and same kind of vocal arrangement all right and Phil May kind of taught him how to do it and then at night he would practice it and then they would record the song the next day with him singing it and it was how they did the album and you know, there were only a few copies of this album made. Over the years it would get bootlegged because I guess this guy's friends let it out eventually. Um, especially by the nineties because they would have kind of like a resurgence a little bit in that career. Let me in the tell you is the original um, album worth anything? Like if you could get your hand on it? Well, that's that's why we got to talk about ugly things. Um you know, and I got to give a big shout out to Ugly Things. Mike Stacks is the guy who runs that magazine, Ugly Things, and they've been around for many, many years. And I subscribe. Yeah, you
1: always magazine. talk about that magazine. I think I think we should give those guys a call, see if they want to just promote their magazine on the podcast, it's interview them.
0: Yeah, I mean, I've I've a lot of the knowledge that I get, especially '60s garage stuff and some of the punk stuff. Is from this magazine. I got to I got to give them credit for that. All right, uh, it's It's a magazine I've been reading for fucking twenty odd years easily. Um, and Mike Stax um, got a copy of the acetate. From wow, that album. And he put it out years back. And what he did was he actually, you know, I mean, the reason he called his magazine Ugly Things is because of the Pretty Things. He was he's like Pretty Things fan wow. number one. and i know for a fact if he's listening i know he was you know friends with them and friends with with phil may so my condolences mike if you're all listening uh you know he was very tight with them and he did a lot to promote that band later on in, in their years um but he had got a copy of it and he put it out with one of the issues of ugly things there was a like a I should say he didn't I don't know if he put it I'm trying to remember if he actually put the album out no what it was he got the band together that had recorded that album and that version of the of the pretty things and then he put a new song like the uh, Mr. Mon- or something whatever it is okay it was like a it was like a <laughs> single just for a certain issue of Ugly Things I might have it somewhere I have like I always keep about a dozen Ugly Things magazines in my living room I have a stack and, but I have in my closet like probably hey so Mike more. if you want
1: to okay. subscribe for ugly magazine it's something you go on the internet how can you subscribe to that magazine
0: uh, look up ugly things okay uh, I think it's UglyThings.com and they will mail it to you um, I get it sent to me comes out I think three four times a year it's a it's a big magazine it's it's like over a hundred pages usually about but a uh, lot of great articles in there everything from Sixties garage to punk to just obscure stuff. Um a lot of sixties, seventies music. Uh, but he'll have new stuff sometimes too. Uh the la- the last issue that came out in the spring of uh of this year, he had an interview with Johnny Blitz from the Dead Boys, and this was the the issue that had the groupies in it. Okay. And the groupies were a great New York City band. Um, hopefully, we're going to be talking to uh this guy Charlie who was associated with them and also the outsiders the new york city band the outsiders that Charlie Charlie was in so uh, there's a good interview with them in there um but anyway uglythings.com you got to check that out
1: Sounds good man Hey how much yeah, how much yeah. do you like a year subscription one uh run you a few bucks
0: You know I I think it's it, I have it on like automatic renewal okay. on my credit card so I don't know. I think it's like uh, it's usually about fifteen dollars an issue, something like that. I don't even pay attention to it anymore. It's reasonable. Okay. it's worth it. You know, if you're a all right, band, sounds you know? good. Yeah. Now, um, Twink, the drummer, would leave in late '69 to start the Pink Fairies, another great band, and uh, Skip Allen would then return on drums to start work on a new album with the Pretty Things, and it was called Parachute. Now, the the thing with doing the French album was they got paid well for it and they were able to work on a new album after that. Um, they got signed to the new Harvest label and producer Norman Smith would work with them. Um, this was their fifth studio album, but the first without Dick Taylor. Dick Taylor was gone.
1: And Dick Taylor was with them since the beginning, right?
0: Right, right. But he would leave, he would, you know, he would leave before they even did the Let me ask you a
1: question. Why why would they have so many? Was it just like, were they difficult to get along with? Was it like film made? What was the problem that people came and gone? You
0: know, I, yeah, well, I I don't know. I I can't, you know, it's just one of these things that, uh, I think, you know, when you don't have, when you don't have a lot of success, right, in a band, but, but you got guys that are driven, okay, to just keep going. And, you know, these guys were, were, were not wealthy, okay? Um, they would catch breaks, but, you know, they weren't living in mansions like the Rolling Stones, nothing like that, okay? Um, and I think that when you're in a band like that and you're struggling financially and maybe not everybody's in agreement on how to go forward, you have tensions. And, you know, sometimes... Certain bands, uh, like for instance The Ramones, spent their whole Career not making a lot of money Touring constantly But they had a lot of tensions But you also had a guy in the band that was Kind of like the disciplinarian and that was Johnny Ramones You know, but if you don't have that kind Of character in a band to kind of Keep everybody in line That's when you lose members
1: But when you lose Dick Taylor, that's pretty Much the guy that started the band
0: yeah, I mean, I I don't know if it was just creative differences with him and May, okay? Because he would he they, they would be reunited later on. So whatever happened, they yeah, did bury the hatchet later on. You know, but this was the first album without Dick Taylor. Now, some tracks on here that I like are called Scene 1, a song called Grass, a song called What's the Use, and a song called Parachute. And it kind of continued with that SF sorrow Psychedelic sound it didn't have a concept to it. it wasn't a rock opera, but it but it was like definitely psychedelic. They recorded this album at Abbey Road All Studios right. and it got released yeah, it got released in June of nineteen seventy Now, the critics loved this album. it was well received right away, but once again uh it didn't sell well, even Rolling Stone gave it a great review wow okay uh but motown's rare earth label would end up releasing it in Canada, okay? I'm not sure if they released it here at first. It might have been Canada first. But the album would then be kind of like repackaged later on, and they would put SF Sorrow and Parachute together, and the collection was called Real Pretty. So, you you know, they took two albums that didn't sell. And, and they made it on one album. album, all right. Well, I mean, not, you know, it would be two separate vinyl records, but, you know, it was just packaged together as a double album. But the band then, uh, they would, you know, they needed extra money. They had done the the French thing, and one thing that they did for extra money is they kind of had this side project. And they called themselves the Electric I was just going to
1: ask you, what's the deal with that? What was the Electric Banana? Was it them just by, under another name?
0: <laughs> yeah, it was the Pretty Things under another name. And what they used to do is they would do songs for movies, okay? Uh, there's a film called Good for the Goose and a song called The Haunted House of Horror. Uh, they would do the music for movies like this. They would also, some of their... Some of their instrumentals and stuff would be used like in softcore porn movies <laughs> of the time. So what's funny is you could actually get that music now. Okay. Uh they it's called the Electric Banana and they they release it under that name. Everybody knows it's the pretty things, but when you listen to it, it's it's the it's everything that you've been hearing pretty much, but like, you know, a lot of instrumentals, like yeah, no good. words. But you, you listen to it, and you're like, that sounds like something off SF Sorrow. Or That wow. sounds like something, you know, not exactly the same, but you could tell, like, that's what they were doing, you know? Yeah, because they have uh, more, more
1: electric banana, even more electric banana. <laughs> Hot lips and the return of electric I banana.
0: I think there's like four, I think there's about four hours or something like that. Okay. Yeah, 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 it's interesting. Um, now, unfortunately, the band would officially break up in mid-71. But they would return later in the year because Wally Waller had become an assistant producer at EMI. And he would be replaced by a guy named Stuart Brooks. They needed to be on a label. And The Pretty Things would sign up with Warner Brothers. But Waller promised to produce the album for them. The thing is, he wasn't, you know, he had left to be a producer at EMI. But they got signed to Warner Brothers. EMI didn't want them anymore. So he had to actually produce that name under a pseudonym. And he used the name Azza Jones. And they would make an album called Freeway Madness. And that got released in December of 72. Now, this was a different kind of album. They, They kind of dropped the psychedelic stuff. It was a little more hard rock sounding. Um, but it didn't do well commercially again. They they had another flop on their hands. Um, but, that, you know, within a few months, they would catch another break. Like you say, a cat yeah. nine lives. And it turned out that uh, David Bowie was interested in them. And he recorded uh, the song Rosalind and the song Don't Bring Me Down. For his Pin Ups album, which is his album. So you got to think about it. That's like songs.
1: a great fucking, um, you know, that's like a great tribute <laughs> to a band that David Bowie's covered in your songs. At yeah. the
0: height of his career, you know. In the same year, they would get a sixth member uh, in the Pretty Things, a guy named Gordon John Edwards. And he was kind of like a, a jack of all trades. He played guitar, he could sing, and he was mostly used for his keyboards. Okay, so he, he was an extra guy in the band, so they would have six members at that point. But they were on the rise here again, all right, because they were getting recognition by Bowie. And also, Peter Grant, who was the manager for Led Zeppelin, would take over managing for them, all right? And he signed them to Led Zeppelin's new label called Swan So this Storm is Records.
1: almost like a reunion with Jimmy Page.
0: Yeah, I mean, their friendship with, with Page... Never, you know, never ended. They continued being friends. Paige was always a fan. Uh, in fact, um, you know, he, he he was always, when it came to them being on his label, like he always said they were great musicians and songwriters. Okay. And uh, he just enjoyed any, whenever they came out with something, he would want to hear it right away. He was always interested in that band. So he was happy that they were on his label. Um Now, before starting work on a new album on Swan Song, bassist Stuart Brooks would leave and his bass lines would be recorded by the guitarist Pete Tolson in the band until they eventually got a new bass player named Jack Green. Jack Green doesn't play on this album, okay? This album was called Silk Torpedo, but... uh, he became an official bass player when they had recorded. Can I tell you uh, that I love that recording. title?
1: Silk torpedo
0: <laughs> You know, I, in, in my research, I realized that I only knew maybe two songs on that album, and I never listened to it all the way through. So I listened to it last night because it has kind of a, a glam rock feel to it on a few songs, which was, which was what the, the style was at the time. In, in England, okay November of 74 glam, was, glam rock was big You had Bowie, T-Rex was still doing okay uh, You had um, Gary Glitter Guys like that, Slade The Sweet, okay So I'm thinking, we're going to be doing some shows About these bands And uh, I'm like, wow, they, they actually did Kind of a glam rock album So I listened to it all the way yeah. through last night And I gotta say It's, 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 a, it's a pretty damn good album it would crack the top 100 on Billboard for the first time. So this is days. like
1: almost like a hit for them.
0: It was almost a hit in the United States. And the Billboard yeah. River is the United States. So it was top. And that was definitely uh, due to not only being a good album, but definitely being pushed by Swan Song, the Led Zeppelin connection with the band, Peter Grant taking over. I mean, you know, if you had Peter Grant, in your corner in those days, you were usually getting somewhere.
1: Yeah, because he was, he was the man, you know?
0: <laughs> he was, yeah, I mean, shit, the, what things he did for Zeppelin, you know? But, uh, they then would, follow, they, they, you know, they, they get right back on their feet, even though it, it, it wasn't a huge hit. It wasn't a failure. They wanted to put something out right away. Uh, but, right around the time of when they were recording a follow-up, uh, for Silk Torpedo, they started having problems in the band again. Um, Phil May and newcomers green and Edwards kind of like didn't get along with each other. And it eventually got to be too much. They put out an album called Savage Eye and it came out in January of 76. But when they had put it out, there was an important show that they were going to do in London in January and uh, made it show up. So he was fired.
1: That's crazy. Fired he fired him. the beat singer.
0: Yeah. And
1: he started the band. And then they tried to call <laughs> the song also- Metropolis, right?
0: Yeah. Yeah. They, they, the the band, the rest of the band tried to start a band called Metropolis. They were hoping Swan Song would sign them, but they weren't interested. So that would be the end of the pretty things for a while. Um, but a few years would pass. And in 78, there was like a one-off reunion gig planned in the Netherlands. That brought the 1967 lineup of Allen, May, Povey, Taylor, Dick Taylor back, right? Yeah. And Waller together. And they hadn't played in that lineup since 67. <clears throat> the gig proved to be succe- successful. They would add Pete Tolson to the lineup and decide to record an album in 1980 called Crosstalk. Talk. And they recorded that for Warner Brothers records. They went back to Warner Brothers. Um, This was an album that Some people say it's their new yeah. wave record uh, I, I, I kind of hear elements of new wave in it But I wouldn't really call it a new wave record It was a, a light album I don't know I, I, I listened to it And there's a couple of songs in there that are alright But it's kind of a weak record to me And it didn't do well at all It didn't sell at all Um, Throughout the rest of the 80s Phil May and Dick Taylor would kind of keep the band going with different guys. It was just Dick Taylor and May and, and a, a rotating group of musicians. And they would tour Europe constantly. They, they didn't come to the States, but they would tour Europe. But in 87, they would release an album called out of the Island. And what they did was they were in the studio recording live and they would be doing older songs from their catalog in other words stuff that they had already recorded on other albums but they were just bringing it to to now and this turned out to be their first album ever released on cd as well wow
1: the first album on cd
0: in 87
1: that's crazy man that's about I think cd started pretty much be taking over you know
0: yeah, yeah, but remember they—you know—they hadn't performed that much. They hadn't, you know, recorded anything. Anymore. But you know what was—if you um, put a
1: CD in the beginning, with not that many CDs, well, if you had a CD, there was pretty, uh, pretty uh, good chance that people would buy it just because they wanted to get new, new albums.
0: Well, if you remember what, uh, when CDs first came out, you know, uh, people that jumped on it were popular acts of the time, something new. Okay, something that was selling a lot. But then if you remember, like, it took a while for the Beatles to yeah. come out on CD. Remember that? Yeah. And it was a big thing. Like, they were announcing it. Paul McCartney announced it. Oh, yeah, we got a new collection of CDs. Everything's been remastered. And, I, you know, it's funny. Me personally, I, I held out on buying CDs till about 1990. I don't think I bought one until 1990. And uh, I was still buying vinyl. The reason being was nothing I liked or I really wanted to get was coming out on CD because I was I was always into punk. And then when I started seeing the fucking Misfits on CD, I saw saw the Misfits walk (laughs) among us on CD. And I said, oh, shit, I guess I'm going to have to I'm going to have to start buying. But you know what? At one
1: point, CD was great, great sound, great quality, man
0: uh it it was uh at times uh, i always felt like it depends on the kind of music some stuff it sounds kind of compressed uh when when you listen to vinyl for certain things it sounds better some stuff it doesn't even matter you know shit like the misfits or you know black flag and punk bands like that it's like who gives a shit you know but but it it, it once you started seeing old stuff like that coming out on CD then I was like oh man I'm going to have to get it because now they'll stop making the vinyl and that's what happened for many yeah. years right
1: but you know what I loved about yeah. CD also that like you could go to the thing it was so good about you could go you can go to any song you wanted
0: yeah but it also kind of disrupted and destroyed the the concept of arranging songs oh for yeah bands. of course because you used to have a side A and a side B. And sometimes you'd want to, you know, side one, side two. Or side Not a, anymore. <laughs> you, you, no, now it's like, you know, track one through 20, you know. But also I think with CDs, uh, and I've noticed this, I, I started noticing this a lot right before downloading became big, is bands would come out with like 25 songs on a CD Because they yes. can't fit it Okay You can fit like An hour and 20 minutes And I just don't have The fucking attention span To listen to it all. <laughs> a record that long Yeah You know what I mean It's like It just And a lot of times Bands would put stuff out And it, it was just filler You know Just to stick it on the CD But you know it's now. Now there's a generation out there. You give them a CD, they don't. Know yeah, they have is, no right? idea.
1: But you know what's funny? They don't know what it did but they totally you know what a vinyl is. How incredible is that?
0: I know. I know. And vinyl. Vinyls made a big comeback, and and even the pretty things, they've jumped on that. I have a a, a vinyl edition of SF Sorrow that was done fantastically, the artwork and everything. And that album had four rounded sides or cut cut off sides kind of it looks almost like a stop sign. okay it was it was packaged that way okay um well like i said in 87 they came out with that out of the island cd and through the 90s they would record some music with other famous musicians uh there would be two albums with the former yardbirds drummer jim mccarty and that was called uh, the Pretty Things Yardbird Blues Band. And also in 92, they would record an album called Rock in the Garage with Matthew Fisher of Procol Harum and members of a band called The Inmates. Yep. At around the same time in 92, uh, they would be battling EMI over unpaid royalties, okay, stemming back to the Motown Rare Earth label in 68. The deal, uh, you know, they were supposed to get royalties from everything that the Rare Earth label sold, but they never got them. Wow. They never got paid all those years later. So it was like almost 30 years later, they would settle this. Okay, they would get the copyrights, the master tapes of everything they did and an undisclosed amount of money. Nobody knows exactly what they got in the settlement. But by 1993, they had gotten complete control of their music. And they created a label called Snapper Music, and they started remastering and releasing their material again. This is how I got interested in them. I, you know, up uh, until they started re-releasing these things, I only knew, God, if I knew six or seven songs, it was a lot. Wow. Every Ten, okay. Uh, you couldn't find their music; it was long out of print. Uh, there was a few new things that they had come out with, but they were like imports or, you know, you catch a song here and there on a radio show in those days. Uh, I mean, I knew Rosalind, I knew, don't bring me down. I knew that they had a song called, and I I forgot to mention it. They had a song in the sixties called LSD. (laughs) Okay. Great fucking song. I heard it tonight on, uh, on a little Steven on little Steven. And, uh, Great fucking song. And, you know, they were known on the Nuggets collection uh, of 60s Garage songs. Uh, Rosalind, Midnight to Six, man. Um, uh, LSD was on there. You know, good. Just, you know, LSD is like a classic psychedelic song.
1: Yeah, obviously. of course.
0: <laughs> um, yeah. <laughs> now, in 98, for the 30th anniversary of SF Sorrow, on the Internet, they did a live show of the whole album. From beginning to end And what they had done in 68 And what they had done in 98 That was the same Was they got Arthur Brown Now He did the The paragraph reading for the albums Like the liner notes So he would be on stage Before they would do certain songs And do these readings Now do you know who Arthur Brown is? I do not know Okay Classic Shock rocker Okay you ever hear the song called... The, you ever, well, first of all, his band was called The Crazy World of Arthur Brown. And he was the guy that sang the song Fire. The one that goes in the beginning goes, I am the God of Hellfire, and I bring you fire. Oh, I have heard that, that song. Yeah, it's a classic yeah. song. And he's got like that headdress on his head, that giant thing on his head. And he's like dancing yeah. around like a native. You know, it's crazy stuff. And he did the, 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 the readings and then they also brought in David Gilmour from Pink Floyd as a guest musician on this. Now, this was the first time um, they had you know, done the whole album in 30 And years. pretty much
1: they did and this because that- they finally got the rights and all the shit, right? That's why?
0: Right, right, right. Well, they was promoting their stuff again. And it was the 30th anniversary. When they did this on the internet, it crashed. <laughs> like...
1: Think about okay. it. And it, only it was, like a, was the internet like that? No, you couldn't have that many people. It probably this was probably a
0: smash hit. It, it was, and you know, it, it, only a few people got to see it. But uh, they would release it, I think, on DVD, and uh, you know, people have seen it after that. But um, this was around the time that they would start uh, a U.S. tour for the first time in decades, and I got to see them at Coney Island High. Um, at the Cave Stop wow. shows That used to be there Okay, that was in, uh, I think it was 98 or 99 And it was a show With uh, The Chesterfield Kings, another great band uh, Great garage band And Sky Saxon From the Seeds did this show And the Pretty Things So I got to see them one time That was the only time um, Through the 2000s The band would be active all the time They'd be releasing their 10th and 11th studio albums they came out with a live album uh, a couple of compilation albums and a few dvds they would re-record parachute in 2010 and they would also do like a reimagining of sf sorrow called sorrow's children wow. and it was a, it was a special recording with a limited edition of 700 vinyl copies and that's it i ch- i wasn't aware of this and i checked it out on youtube and i caught uh, one song, I think it was called "Sorrow's Children," and it's very similar. It starts out kind of the same way SF Sorrow with some different lyrics and stuff. So they would, you know, doing some things with their old themes, which was interesting. Uh, but if you got one of these, it's only one of seven hundred, so it's it is definitely rare. very rare. Um, it's a
1: collector's item.
0: Now, in, absolutely, in 2012, they would go back to New Zealand for the first time since 1965. And they brought their original bass player, John. So you told
1: me to to let them back in there?
0: (laughs) Let them back in 30, 40 years later. (laughs) And by 2013, they were celebrating their 50th anniversary as a band. And uh, they would tour the UK and Europe. And they released a studio album called the sweet, pretty things. And in parentheses, it said are in bed now, of course.
1: That's funny. Uh,
0: Yeah. And, but in 2018, there was some news, and that was their announcement that they were retiring. Uh, they were doing a farewell tour, uh, which they did, and they recorded it. There's some box sets out there with different material and books, and you know, if you want to spend two three hundred dollars, it's all out there. It's it's great. It's great stuff to have if you're a collector. Um, sadly, uh, Phil May passed away last month on May 15th. At age seventy-five, from complications following That's his That's crazy, journey. man. But they, yeah, but they are—they were working on new material. Uh, they weren't going to tour it, I believe. Uh, the story was they were just going to record it and release it. But now it's a—it's a posthumous type thing with Phil being dead. Um, it it was—it was due. It's due for release later this year, so there should be a new album by the end of this year. From them with new material.
1: So what they probably do, they'll probably release their album, man. Pretty much that's it. They're probably not going. to They're definitely not going to tour. But
0: no, they can't. They can't tour. Phil is gone. There's nobody that's going to sing those songs. Uh, but I, I don't know. I mean, you know, they. I don't think they can go on without him. You know, I mean, he was he was really the voice of the band. He was the heart and soul of the band. I'm, obviously, the heart and soul. Yeah. I mean, even Dick Taylor had left for a while. Yeah, because when you
1: look at the history, he's there for every incarnation they had.
0: Yep, yep. So, what do you think? Yeah, man, that was
1: uh, that was a fascinating history, man. You went through a lot of years, a lot of stuff. Think about it: fifty years of these guys going on and off and getting together.
0: Fifty-five years, fifty, and then think think about the
1: fucking um, how many band members and the history that they have from um. Mick Jagger, um, Keith Richard, fucking um, uh, Page. Think about all the people and the people that produced them. Like these guys, these guys were like a fucking
0: um, pretty much they were like rock and roll royalty, you know. Yeah, yeah. Uh, one thing too, like Twink, the drummer. Uh, when he went on to be the the drummer in the Pink Fairies, I mean they they're an interesting band. They had a few albums out. They very influential on Lemmy from Motorhead. Okay, he loved the Pink Fairies. They recorded one of their songs called City Kids. Um, my old friend Rick Rivets was friends with wow. Twink. And he had a label called Whiplash Records and he was he recorded some stuff with Twink and they put it out on his label. So I have I've seen a bunch of Twink things all over his wow. house. You know, he, he was he was became he became friends with him over the years and they were supposed to record together again, a few other things that never happened. But, uh, yeah, I mean, Twink's like one of these guys that's been, been around, you know, in but Mike, that when
1: means- I looked at how many uh, members this they had, I was like, holy shit.
0: <laughs> yeah. 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 And and speaking of Rick Rivets real quick is, uh, he gave me, before he passed away, he gave me his copy of the pretty things first wow. album. Just he just I came over one night and he's like, here I want you to have this, and I was like, really? He's like, yeah. He goes, he goes, I want you to have it. I'm like, thank you, you know. And guys, I'm looking at it right now. It's you know on Fontana Records, and uh, he bought it back way back, man. Let me ask a
1: question. They never, they're not in the Hall of Fame or anything, and they never, they never no. even won Grammys or anything like that. No, they
0: they had they had no real U.S. None, none that, at all. That, 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 that's that, amazing. Didn't, didn't you know, they, they have a big cult following. Let me tell you, when I saw them at Coney Island High, everybody knew who they were. You know, but that was a small yeah. venue. But, uh, you know, it's it's amazing that they, even being on Swan Song with Zeppelin, that they didn't end up, you know, touring the States with, the big band, you know, opening. You know what? I think like I think they play what
1: they like, and they were like, "Fuck it."
0: They, I think they, I think they were like that. I think they were like very much like doing yeah. it their own way, no matter what, you know. And I think that's how they lasted so long. You know, they had that like, "Fuck it, we could, you know, we could just do it, and if no one buys it, no one buys we'll, it. We'll, we'll, we'll,
1: we'll get, get another, we'll, we'll, we'll get another signing.
0: Somebody yeah. else was signing." yeah yeah i mean it's it's amazing i i was trying to look at like their whole discography i mean i've got a few albums but you can't even get all their stuff it's impossible nah. if you go you know, on you, iTunes. they yeah. only got
1: about seven albums
0: yeah but it's more oh, i know
1: then you if you yeah. go to spotify they got a few more albums like you got to look at different places
0: <laughs> Yeah, there's a collection um, called the BBC Sessions, which I'd like to get. It's like three hours of their music, man, and it was all recorded on the BBC on BBC Radio. Bowie has a good collection like that too, but uh, I'd love to get that. And that they, they did, like I said, um, the the final shows were recorded in a box set and a DVD and everything with like a big hard covered book, and you could buy it in a box set. So. Yes, uh, you're out. a
1: friend, and um, and um, you know what, get the pretty things, man. Very uh, unique band, very solid history, great song. Um, after all yeah. this, what would you say? Uh, album, the album of the week from them, I, I was song. gonna say that. And uh, what song would you pick out of the catalog?
0: Song of oh, the week, man. Um. LSD <laughs> <laughs> because just the opening the opening riffs of it you go like this is going to be a cool song even before he starts singing you know and uh it's just the song i always love from them but the album for me will always be SF sorrow it's it's a it's a great little psychedelic nugget if you're into that kind of stuff it really like that epitomizes british psychedelic music Hey, Mike,
1: that. I don't know if I told you, but your work's not going unnoticed. Some um some guy who heard the GG adding and then listened to the Ramon and he said keep up the
0: good work. Yeah, uh you talk about the guy the great-, great dancing,
1: yeah. That's a you know what? That's a nice little compliment. He also have a YouTube channel. Um I'm gonna see if uh-huh. I read uh, you, you see some of the stuff like he had like generation um like the
0: generation yeah and generation all this X. other
1: stuff so yeah um i'm gonna see if we reach out to the guy just to see if he want to do the show with us he will probably get a few fan, and the two of us could probably all of us can help each other out try to get a bigger fan base you know
0: yeah yeah definitely a big shout out to him thank you for the compliments and as always a shout out to boogie I yeah
1: boogie live. live if we ever do though, he'll, the he'll be the guest <laughs> <laughs> Mikey, if you saw our schedule, we got a lot of work in the next couple of weeks.
0: Oh yeah, definitely, man. You know, we, definitely. But you know, it's the labor of love for me, man. I yeah, you
1: it. know what? You gotta, you gotta look at like on the podcast. Uh, more and more, we get more and more hits on the podcast each week. You know what? we getting some compliments. I just, I think we're on the right path. I think we will keep the show going, and it's pretty much two drunk assholes talking about rock and roll and just good music and punk.
0: Yeah, and uh, be nice if we could do videos.
1: Yeah, uh, I hopefully. think hopefully, uh, by next week, we're gonna have to figure something out, and maybe we can start doing some video because, um, I I think my schedule I'll probably be off Thursday, Friday, Saturday. If you could find a day, we could probably go uh, backyard or international and do it.
0: All right, so sounds let's see we'll if we out. could
1: do, um, because visually, you know, you, you always bring the nice looking record albums or. You bring a little, uh, bring on the show by bringing some stuff that you have from the band, or just from the history of the band, or a book. You know.
0: Yeah, I mean, I try to make yeah. it interesting. Plus the girls, plus the girls want to see two hot guys. <laughs> come on. I, I think, they think they cool. that's
1: what they turn off the.
0: They just leave They just They just listen, listen to the, the show to watch.
1: So, yeah. So i I just. I just did a different format. I just been putting. Um, trying to get pictures of the band and. It seemed to see people. Some people seem to like it, you know.
0: Yeah, yeah, that's done well with the YouTube. You've done, you've done. Yeah, great and I just, I Robin. just spent like a few hours
1: just looking at pictures and pictures. It's like it's tedious, but once, once that I, I got it down to pretty much. I just put the thing, and then I just look for pictures, and um, you know, I was working together. And I think I do the old Ken yeah. Burns um kind of thing. <laughs> <laughs> You're a lumped yeah. up Ken Burns. <laughs> <laughs> so Mike, so we're off and um hopefully everything be good. People be safe. Um, stay out of problem. I know we live into a weird time and uh pretty soon we'll you guys be seeing us in video. And we got a lot a lot of more shows coming up, man. Like we got some more making up albums. We got uh the um we got the um doors, and we also got um like in September we got Re- revolver, right?
0: Yeah, uh, the two makings of will be the Doors' first album and then the making of the Beatles' Revolver in September. But we got a great uh, glam show coming up. We're doing something on Sweet, something on Slade in September. uh, Gary Glitter, I think we're doing. Uh, That should be interesting. Um, and, uh, you know, it's just, uh, it's just great. And, you know, I want to thank everybody out there for, for listening. Yeah. And
1: we also, and, uh, we're working we'll work on some other stuff. Pretty soon we'll have some nice interview from people that we're going to people, you guys are going to be like, Holy shit. Where the hell do you guys get this from? This
0: from? Oh, we're, we're, we're digging yeah. some people. And uh, our next but show,
1: remember, is going to be Captain Beefheart. It should be a very good show. And that'll be episode 79. And then, on uh, the making of the door is going to be episode eighty, so that should be a big episode.
0: Wow, wow, hundred after is... that
1: we're like twenty more away from a hundred, man, and that's where we do the wow. big party. You know what I mean?
0: <laughs> should, I, I hopefully
1: by then the bars are open, we can have a drink like a gentleman in a
0: bar. Like, I think so. I think so. I think it'll be All long right? before that.
1: So to everybody right. out there in the in the interspace world. Remember, don't get drunk, get lumped up. Get lumped up.